We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 230 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, January 17th, 2022. And before we go any further, I would like to ask you a simple question. How about them Cowboys? How about them Cowboys? Yes, as Jimmy Johnson famously said many years ago, how about them Cowboys? Oh, Dallas, our hearts break for thee. Another season of postseason failure for the boys of Big D. They say that everything is bigger in Texas. I guess that's true of playoff failure as well. Hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, a Martin Luther King Jr. Day installment of the pod, a salute to the skies to one of the most important people in the history of our country. You know, MLK was just 39 when he was assassinated. Yes, he was only in his 30s. You might have thought that he was in his 40s or his 50s. He certainly was wise beyond his years. No, he was just 39 when he got shot to death. He did all that he did in his 20s and 30s. You're never too young to do great and important things. I hope that everyone is surviving yet another winter storm in the DMV. Lots of snow, lots of ice, lots of wind, and yes, lots of football. We are five games into the NFL six-game Super Wild Card weekend, and we have a lot to talk about in our examination of these games through a Washington football team prism. Oh yes, we will revel in, we will splash around in the Cowboys' home loss to the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday. What was up with the end of that game? What were the Cowboys thinking? Could the loss end up costing Mike McCarthy his job as Cowboys head coach? Wait till you hear what the Cowboys owner, president, and general manager Jerry Jones had to say after the game. We'll get to all of this next segment. I'm also going to talk quarterbacks. What do you think about Jimmy Garoppolo as a potential target for the Washington football team 
this offseason. What would you think about Jimmy G in D.C.? Maybe we should get that hashtag trending. Hashtag Jimmy G to D.C. What about the Las Vegas Raiders Derek Carr? Is him being a potential target of Washington at all realistic? What about the Seattle Seahawks' Russell Wilson? Did you see what came out regarding him on Sunday morning? The saga that is Washington's search for a franchise quarterback already is picking up steam, so I'll get into Garoppolo, Carr, and Wilson coming up in just a bit. Also on the show, I'll discuss the rest of our Washington, D.C. sports weekend. The Capitals had a mixed weekend that did include a big weekend for Alex Ovechkin. The Wizards suffered another loss over the weekend. It was not a good weekend in college basketball. Maryland, Georgetown, and Virginia all lost, although Virginia Tech did win. And believe it or not, I'll be talking baseball with you late in the show as the Nationals over the weekend signed arguably the number one international prospect in the sport, outfielder Christian Vaquero, a major acquisition for the Nats. Although we also had some bad Nats news over the last few days with the news that Seth Romero has been arrested and charged with DWI. I also have some Orioles to discuss with you as they're making changes to Oriole Park at Camden Yards and for good reason. So I'm going to be covering a lot of ground on this show. Washington football team, NFL playoffs, Capitals, Wizards, Terrapins, Hoyas, Cavaliers, Hokies, Nationals, and Orioles. Name me another show that gives you all of that. Uh, And so, if you would, uh, please give this podcast a five-star rating. If you haven't yet done that, uh, you can rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Yes, you can now rate podcasts on Spotify. Uh, Also, if you are using Apple Podcasts, please write a brief one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. If you haven't yet done that, uh, I really do appreciate those things, and those things do help out the podcast a lot. So thank you to all of you who already have done those things, and if you haven't yet done those things, if you could just take like the 30 seconds or so that uh, are required to do those things, much appreciated. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Stanley Evans on the end of the Cowboys 2021 season. Right, Stanley, are we sure that Dak Prescott is that guy? The Cowboys always underperform in big moments, especially Dak. He struggles against teams that are above 500. Nothing is better than the misery of Cowboys fans. I hate everybody in the division equally, but I believe for a fact that the WFT, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the New York Giants hate Dallas a little more. LOL. Hope Jerry Jones is still crying and keeps Mike McCarthy as head coach. Yes, much more on the Cowboys situation next segment. Email from Peter in Springfield, Virginia on the Washington football team potentially trading for Raiders quarterback Derek Carr. Writes Peter, media and football analysts are wondering about Derek Carr's availability and the commander's need for a quarterback. What are the possibilities? My take is if Dan Snyder didn't answer Kyle Shanahan's phone call for Kirk Cousins, why should we expect Mark Davis to answer a Dan Snyder phone call about Carr. I think we are on Mark Davis's do not call list off the leaked Bruce Allen emails that forced John Gruden out as Raiders head coach. Interesting point, Peter, and it's a good point. You know, if Mark Davis believes that it was Dan Snyder who leaked the Bruce Allen emails that eventually led to John Gruden being out as Raiders head coach, then heck yeah, I could see Mark Davis refusing to do business, refusing to talk trade with Dan Snyder. You know, we still don't know who leaked those Bruce Allen emails. Will we ever know? And yes, I a few years ago was told 
that Washington could have traded Kirk Cousins to the 49ers for the number two pick in the 2017 NFL Draft, but wouldn't even talk trade with the Niners because Kyle Shanahan is their head coach. I was told this by USA Today NFL columnist Mike Jones, who used to cover the Redskins for the Washington Post. Amazing, right? That you wouldn't swallow whatever contempt you have for Kyle and do the deal and get the number two pick in the 2017 draft. And yet, Washington wouldn't do that. Uh, Interestingly, that number two overall pick in the 2017 draft ended up being acquired by the Chicago Bears. They used that pick on Mitchell Trubisky, who Ron Rivera and company supposedly like and could end up signing as an unrestricted free agent this offseason. We'll see. Email from Matthew Rogers on the quarterback in the 2022 NFL draft, who I like the best for the Washington football team, Kenny Pickett of Pitt. Writes Matthew, hey Al, I love your show. I've listened to you forever from down here in Powhatan, Virginia, just west of Richmond, for years on a scratchy 980 AM signal. Listen, Al, I know we will be hammering out this quarterback move for the next few months, but I want your listeners to take a good look at this Kenny Pickett. Al, he's the real deal. He's big, he's got wheels, and his strongest suit is his accuracy. If there's a next Justin Herbert out there, it's Pickett. Now, we are going to need to trade up to get him. I hate having to do that, but Al, he will be worth it. Otherwise, the Giants will draft him and he will kick our teeth in for the next 10 years. So please, Scott Turner, get this one right. Well, thank you for the email, Matt. Yeah, Kenny Pickett right now to me is the number one quarterback in the 2022 draft. And yeah, Matthew, uh, Washington probably would have to trade up in the first round to take Pickett. A lot can change, but for now, that appears to be the case because here's the deal. I count at least eight of the first 10 picks in the 2022 draft as potentially being picks at which teams take quarterbacks. The Detroit Lions at two, the Houston Texans at three, the New York Giants at five, the Carolina Panthers at six, the Giants again at seven, the Atlanta Falcons at eight, and the Denver Broncos at nine. Now, they're not all going to go quarterback, but each team that I just mentioned could go quarterback. So, The notion of Kenny Pickett falling to Washington at 11, look, anything's possible, but you can't call that probable. Uh, Not right now, anyway. Well, if you right now are dealing with having been wronged, contact Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. Paulson and Nace fights for the rights and futures of victims and their families throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace has a skilled team of personal injury, birth injury, and medical malpractice trial attorneys that puts your best interests first. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Look, I've known the Naces for 25-plus years. These are good people and smart people who get the job done. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars For the sick and injured, when you are injured because of someone else's negligence and may experience feelings of anger, anxiety, frustration, choosing the right law firm to help you can be overwhelming. How do you know whom to trust? How do you know that you'll be protected? Well, it's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. 
You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. All right, so before we get to some Washington football team-related quarterback thoughts from the first five games of Super Wildcard Weekend and to some news that came out during the weekend, we got to discuss our close personal friends, the Dallas Cowboys. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And to paraphrase the great NFL analyst Britney Spears from many years ago, oops, they did it again. The Cowboys, they lost in their first game in an NFL postseason. The Cowboys, who during the 2021 regular season went 12-5 and and won the NFC East, got eliminated in the wildcard round of the 2022 NFL playoffs, a 23-17 home loss to the San Francisco 49ers, for whom the head coach, of course, is former Washington offensive coordinator Kyle Shanahan. Cousin Kyle on Sunday went into Jerry World and ended the Cowboys season. Now, things got dicey, right? And things got dicey in no small part thanks to someone else who used to be with Washington, left tackle Trent Williams. Fourth and one for the 49ers at the Cowboys 38 with 40 seconds left in the fourth quarter. The 49ers engineer a quarterback sneak for a game-icing first down, and instead, Trent Williams' four-yard false start penalty for a no play. The Niners ended up punting. The Cowboys got the ball back, started a drive at their own 20 with 32 seconds left. That was a huge screw-up by Trent Williams. Trent Williams could have ended up being a major goat in 49ers history, if not for what ended up happening, but what ended up happening was so glorious. And so the Cowboys remain with a mere three playoff wins since the start of the 1997 season. Yes, three playoff wins. For all of the talk about the Cowboys every year, for all of the coverage that the Cowboys receive every year, for all of the hype that the Cowboys get every year, the Cowboys have totaled, have totaled just three playoff wins over the last 25 seasons, and not a single one of those seasons has lasted beyond the divisional round of the playoffs. I tweeted this right after the Cowboys lost to the 49ers on Sunday. No team in sports over the last 25 years has a greater ratio of media coverage slash hype to actual postseason achievement than the Cowboys. Seriously, name me a team that even comes close. I mean, the only other team that comes to my mind is the New York Knicks. But the Cowboys get a lot more attention than the Knicks get because the NFL gets a lot more attention than the NBA gets. Now, let me make something clear. Would I, as a Washington fan, exchange my team's last 25 seasons with the Cowboys' last 25 seasons? Yes. I would. Uh, The Cowboys, since the start of the 1997 season, have won at least 11 games in a regular season five times. Uh, Washington, as you may know, has not won at least 11 games in a regular season since the 1991 season. 
So understand, I'm not laughing at the Cowboys from a standpoint of my team is so much better than that team. My team is not so much better than that team. But you see, I recognize how bad my team has been. I fully admit that my team has been bad. I'm well aware of how bad my team has been. Plenty of Cowboys fans don't recognize, don't admit, just how feeble their team has been in the playoffs for a quarter of a century now. Us Washington fans, we know just how pathetic our team's results have been for decades now. I'm not sure how many Cowboys fans are truly aware of how weak, again, how feeble their team has been, certainly from a postseason standpoint, for decades now. So yeah, what happened at the end of this Cowboys loss to the 49ers. This was amateur hour. Second and one at the 49ers 41 with 14 seconds left. The Cowboys ran a designed quarterback run for Dak Prescott. The play ended up being a 17-yard shotgun quarterback draw run. The Cowboys then scrambled, and I mean scrambled to spike the football, but the spike ended up happening as time expired. The final official play of the game was the spike, which happened with one second left. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about what happened here. And people are all over the official, the umpire, Raymond George, for taking too long to spot the football as he stumbled as he was running to keep up with the play and got in the way of the scramble to spike the football. And yeah, I mean, was the execution from the ump, Raymond George, picture perfect? No, but whatever. That play call of a Dak Prescott run was way too risky with 14 seconds left. Blame the play call. Don't blame Raymond George. A, why aren't you taking a shot at the end zone? B, if you're going to call a design quarterback run like that, you've got to at least have, say, 15, 16 seconds left in the game. 14 seconds is way too risky, and it sets you up to experience what ended up happening, which was the nightmare scenario. Like what you had to avoid, what you had to avoid there was time running out. That was a nightmare scenario from a Cowboys perspective. Time running out, and yet that's exactly what happened. That was too big of a risk to take, a quarterback run in that spot with no timeouts left. And so what now? I don't know. I wouldn't dismiss anything. I do think it's possible that this loss will cost Mike McCarthy his job as Cowboys head coach. You know, it's a funny thing with McCarthy. His overall record as an NFL head coach is tremendous, and yet the guy has gotten skewered, and I think rightfully so, for a lot of his in-game execution stuff over the years. Well, uh, what happened on Sunday does Mikey Mike no favors. You know, I'm not sure that it's likely that McCarthy is going to get fired as Cowboys head coach, but I do think that him getting fired is possible, especially if the Cowboys Don't want to lose their offensive coordinator, Kellen Moore, who plenty of people think could become a head coach. Although, don't you also have to blame Kellen Moore, at least in part, for what happened in this game with the Cowboys? And not just with that final sequence there resulting in time running out. Uh, The Cowboys in this game were a mess offensively. The Cowboys in this game underachieved greatly offensively. But going back to Mike McCarthy, take a listen to Jera. Take a listen to the Cowboys owner, president, and general manager, Jerry Jones, after the game. Does this sound like a boss who is dead set on retaining his head coach? 
Well, I think this is a time that uh, when you get this combination of players together, you need to uh, have success because we all know how it goes in the NFL. The whole thing is set up to take away from the best and add to the ones that need improvement. And personnel-wise, I think we have one of the best. All righty. So Jerry Jones, quote, when you get this combination of players together, you need to have success. End quote. Ominous words, indeed, for Mike McCarthy, who during his postgame press conference did blame the umpire, Raymond George. Mikey, go ahead and blame Raymond George all you want. Your team blew it, okay? The Cowboys offense got stifled by a 49ers defense that during the game lost two of the team's best players in edge defender Nick Bosa and linebacker Fred Warner. The Cowboys had a franchise playoff record 14 accepted penalties. The Cowboys blew it, okay? All of this hype, all of these stars, and yet the Cowboys lost at home in the first round of the NFL playoffs. Their mighty offense largely looked bad in the game, and the Cowboys' season is done, just as, by the way, the season of the other NFC East team that made the postseason, the Philadelphia Eagles, is done. The Eagles getting stomped at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 31-15 on Sunday afternoon. Understand something about the Cowboys and the Eagles. Each team benefited greatly from a really weak schedule during the 2021 regular season. So I've talked about how Washington faced the hardest schedule in the NFL in the 2021 regular season. Washington for the 2021 regular season had the hardest schedule in the NFL per Football Outsiders DVOA metric based on the average team DVOA of Washington's opponents. Well, the Eagles in the 2021 regular season had the fifth easiest schedule in the NFL per DVOA, and not coincidentally went 9-8 and eight and made the NFL playoffs. The Cowboys in the 2021 regular season had the seventh easiest schedule in the NFL per DVOA, went 12-5 and five and won the NFC East. And interestingly, the New York Giants in the 2021 regular season had the second hardest schedule in the NFL per DVOA, and went 4-13. and 13. Your schedule matters. Who you play matters. And to me, it's not a coincidence that the two NFC East teams with by far the easiest schedules in the division this season made the playoffs this season and then got exposed in the playoffs. But bottom line, here we are again. The Cowboys won and done in an NFL postseason. The Cowboys over the last 25 seasons have just three playoff wins. Washington, over the last 25 seasons, has just two playoff wins. Oh, our team has been bad. Hear me loudly and clearly on that. But the Cowboys, from a postseason achievement standpoint, haven't been much better. Up next, much more from the first five games of the NFL's Super Wildcard Weekend from a Washington football team perspective. I will talk quarterbacks. How are we feeling about the quarterback who won at the Cowboys on Sunday, Jimmy Garoppolo. Also, now that the Las Vegas Raiders season is over, is Derek Carr a legitimate option for Washington in its quest for a franchise quarterback? And what to make of this report on Sunday regarding the Seattle Seahawks' Russell Wilson? Might he be, could he be, an option for Washington? I'll get to all of that and more after this.
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, so let's talk about what matters the most for our Washington football team in its 2022 offseason quarterback. Uh, The never-ending pursuit for a franchise quarterback. Nothing to me stood out more from the first five games of Super Wildcard Weekend than this. Four of the five games featured the better quarterback winning. The Cincinnati Bengals over the Las Vegas Raiders. Joe Burrow beat Derek Carr. The Buffalo Bills smashing the New England Patriots, Josh Allen beat Mac Jones. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers ripping the Philadelphia Eagles, Tom Brady beat Jalen Hurts. The Kansas City Chiefs routing the Pittsburgh Steelers, Patrick Mahomes beat the fading Ben Roethlisberger. The better quarterback won each of those four games. Nothing matters more in the NFL than quarterback. Now, the exception over the weekend was the San Francisco 49ers 23-17 win at the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday. Jimmy Garoppolo beat Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott is better than Jimmy Garoppolo. At least I think that that's the case. And yet Jimmy G won the game. I'll just say this. I am interested in Jimmy Garoppolo for Washington. Now, that interest does come with a few concerns. The biggest one is Garoppolo's lack of durability. Garoppolo has been hurt a lot. Garoppolo in the 2018 regular season played in just three games due to a torn left ACL that was suffered in September 2018. Garoppolo in the 2020 regular season played in just six games due to multiple ankle injuries. Garoppolo in the 2021 regular season missed a game due to a right calf injury and then missed another game due to a right thumb injury. The 2022 season will be Garoppolo's age 31 season. He's not old, but his body has been through a lot and really in limited time as an NFL starting quarterback. So I certainly would be concerned about the durability issues with which Garoppolo has dealt. My other big concern with Garoppolo is this. If he's so good, why did the 49ers trade up in the 2021 NFL draft 
to take a quarterback. I mean, remember, Garoppolo was the 49ers QB1 for the 2019 season when the Niners won the NFC Championship. Garoppolo got the Niners to a Super Bowl, and yet still, the Niners less than two years later were ready to move on from him, as we saw in their massive trade-up that eventually yielded Trey Lance. Why? I mean, if Garoppolo is so good, why is the 49ers head coach, our buddy, our pal, former Washington offensive coordinator Kyle Shanahan, so eager to move on from Garoppolo? So I do have these concerns, but I also will admit this, Jimmy Garoppolo can play. And Jimmy Garoppolo, to me, had a very impressive 2021 regular season, despite him clearly no longer being in the 49ers plans as the team's long-term starting quarterback. I mean, here you had the 49ers last March 26th acquiring the number three overall pick in the 2021 NFL draft from the Miami Dolphins in exchange for the Niners' 2021 first-round pick, number 12 overall, 2022 and 2023 first-round picks, and a 2022 compensatory third-round pick. The Niners used that number three overall pick in the 2021 draft on North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance. This was a huge move by the Niners. You've heard of dead man walking. Jimmy Garoppolo was benched quarterback quarterbacking. I mean, he in no way was in any way the 49ers long-term plan at quarterback moving forward. And yet Garoppolo in the 2021 regular season over 15 games was quite good. Jimmy Garoppolo finished the 2021 regular season number one among all qualified NFL quarterbacks in yards per completion at 12.66. Number two among all qualified NFL quarterbacks in yards per pass attempt at 8.64. Number six among all qualified NFL quarterbacks in completion percentage at 68.3. And number 14 among all qualified NFL quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR. That's a really nice regular season. And now we have seen Jimmy G do as he has done in the postseason win at the Cowboys. Jimmy Garoppolo has chops. Jimmy Garoppolo has moxie. Jimmy Garoppolo this season has really spit in the face of having been soured on by Kyle Shanahan. I give Garoppolo a lot of credit for that. So assuming that he'll be available this offseason, I do think that Washington should be interested. Now, I'm not saying that Washington has to trade for Jimmy G, okay? You got to see what the cost is. You also got to figure out things contractually. Washington would have to work out an extension with Garoppolo. The 2022 season is set to be the final season of a five-year, $137.5 million contract extension that Garoppolo signed with the 49ers in February 2018. His salary cap hit for the 2022 season is set to be $27 million. But I do think that Garoppolo should be considered by Washington. So too should Raiders quarterback Derek Carr, if in fact he's available. And that's a big if. Uh, I tend to think that he won't be, but who knows. Now, if Carr is available, as with Garoppolo, you got to ask why. I mean, if Derek Carr is so good, why would the Raiders be moving on from him? But what if it is he who is moving on from the Raiders. NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on Saturday morning reported that it appears as if the future of Derek Carr with the Raiders is tied to the Raiders head coaching search. Quote, Las Vegas and Carr have a mutual decision to make this offseason, and sources say the choice of the head coach will be a factor. 
General Manager Mike Mayock's performance will be evaluated as well by owner Mark Davis, and whether he, as in Mayock's days, may also affect Carr's future as a new GM would have to make a decision on Carr's contract. End quote. Yes, Carr's contract. The 2022 season is set to be the final season of a five-year, $125 million contract extension that Carr signed with the Raiders in June 2017. But understand, Carr's salary cap hit for the 2022 season is set to be just $19.88 million. I have a saying, especially when it comes to quarterback contracts, today's overpay is tomorrow's bargain. When Derek Carr signed this extension in June 2017, this was a mega money deal. Here we are now, a few years later, and Carr's cap hit for the 2022 season is set to be a microscopic, relatively speaking, $19.88 million. That's why you always pay today, because tomorrow, what you pay today will look like a bargain. But yeah, Carr is only under contract for one more season, but it is at a bargain price. Now, Carr had a mixed game in the Raiders game over the weekend, the 26-19 loss at the Cincinnati Bengals on Saturday. Carr did make some big throws in quarterbacking a Raiders offense that went 8 of 18 on third downs, but also for Carr in the game was him going just 4 of 17 on red zone passes. Yeah, Derek Carr on Saturday, 4 of 17 on red zone passes. His 13 red zone incompletions were the second most red zone incompletions for a player in an NFL regular season or postseason game over the last 20 seasons for ESPN. Additionally, Carr on Saturday threw for just 310 yards on 54 pass attempts, a mere 5.74 yards per pass attempt. Also, Carr had a first quarter loss fumble on a sack strip, and Carr threw a game-sealing interception. He got a fourth and goal at the nine with 17 seconds left in the fourth quarter, fired a shotgun pass to a well-covered receiver in Zay Jones at the Bengals, too. Why Carr didn't throw the football into the end zone I'm not sure the game and the Raiders' season were ending. Uh, But still, that's one game. Uh, Derek Carr has been really durable. Uh, Unlike Jimmy Garoppolo, with Carr, you don't have to worry about an injury history. The Raiders took Carr in the second round of the 2014 NFL Draft out of Fresno State. Derek Carr has started 127 of a possible 129 regular season games over his eight NFL seasons, 2014 through 2021. The 2022 season will be just Carr's age 31 season, and he statistically has been really impressive over the last three seasons. I mean, I think the best way to evaluate a player is over his previous three seasons. I think seasons become less and less relevant once you get beyond the last three. Derek Carr is ranked in the top 13 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR in each of the last three regular seasons. Derek Carr is ranked in the top 10 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in yards per pass attempt in each of the last three regular seasons. Derek Carr is ranked in the top 10 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in completion percentage in each of the last three regular seasons. So I think there's a lot to like about Derek Carr. Again, I would be surprised if he ends up not being the Raiders starting quarterback for the 2022 season. But if for whatever reason he becomes available, perhaps by his own choosing, 100% Washington should be in on Derek Carr. And then there is Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson, who, no, did not participate in a Super Wild Card Weekend, but whose name did come up during Super 
wildcard weekend. So NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on Sunday morning reported that Russell Wilson, per sources, quote, wants to explore his options to see what else might be out there for him. Wilson has not demanded a trade, and it's not clear if he will, but at the least, those close to Wilson say he wants to investigate other destinations to see if those would put him in a better position to win another championship and create the legacy he sees for himself. End quote. Well, right there may be the deal breaker (laughs) where the report says he wants to investigate other destinations to see if those would put him in a better position to win another championship. Yeah, uh, Washington right now, not exactly in a position to win a championship. So that right there might be the disqualifier for the Washington football team acquiring Russell Wilson this offseason. But let's play this out. So the 2022 season is set to be the penultimate season of a four-year, $140 million contract extension that Wilson signed with the Seahawks in April 2019. Wilson's remaining salary cap numbers on the deal are $37 million for the 2022 season and $40 million for the 2023 season. The contract includes a no trade clause. So Wilson is costly. There's zero guarantee that he would even want to come to Washington. But to me, Washington should be interested. I mean, Russell Wilson is Russell Wilson. He's a future Pro Football Hall of Famer. He has been very durable. The Seahawks took Wilson in the third round of the 2012 NFL draft out of Wisconsin. He has started 158 of a possible 161 regular season games over his 10 NFL seasons, 2012 through 2021. He hadn't missed a regular season game until this past regular season. Wilson, in the 2021 regular season, missed three games due to an injured middle finger on his right hand. Now, Russell Wilson is older. The 2022 season will be Wilson's age 34 season, but he still is good. Uh, Russell Wilson is ranked in the top 12 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR in each of the last three regular seasons. Wilson is ranked in the top 13 among qualified NFL quarterbacks in yards per pass attempt in each of the last three regular seasons. His completion percentage did dip precipitously this past regular season. Russell Wilson finished the 2021 regular season just 20th among qualified NFL quarterbacks in completion percentage at 64.8, but he was top 10 each of the previous two regular seasons. So as we're just getting going with this Washington football team 2022 offseason and the quest for a franchise quarterback for Washington is just heating up, we already have three veteran quarterbacks to at least be pondering. Now again, I think that both Derek Carr and Russell Wilson are unlikely, but that doesn't mean that if you're Washington, you don't ask and you don't try. The most gettable of the three quarterbacks who I just talked about certainly would seem to be Jimmy Garoppolo. The injury history does worry me, as does why the 49ers are willing to move on from him, but the guy clearly has something to him. All right, let's talk Capitals who had themselves a 1-1 and a weekend. Saturday afternoon, a 2-0 win at the New York Islanders as the Caps snapped their season-worst four-game losing streak, although two of the losses had been non-regulation losses. Sunday afternoon, a 4-2 loss to the Vancouver Canucks at Capital One Arena. So the Caps now are 21-9-9 on the season. Caps are third in the Metropolitan Division at 51 points. We have had more comings and goings with the Caps in recent days. This has got to be driving head coach Peter Laviolette nuts. You just, you never know 
on any given day who is in and who is out for the Caps, given all the injuries that the Caps have dealt with this season, and of course, given the COVID-19-induced absences that the Caps and obviously every team in sports has had to deal with over the last year or so. So first of all, TJ Oshie now is hurt. Uh, he did not play in the loss to the Canucks at Capital Win Arena on Sunday afternoon due to an upper body injury that he suffered in that win at the Islanders on Saturday afternoon. Oshie has been banged up a bunch this season now he's hurt again. Also, defenseman John Carlson on Sunday afternoon did not play due to being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. And Connor Sheary on Sunday afternoon did not play for a second consecutive game due to being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. The Caps also remain without Anthony Mantha. Uh, he remains out indefinitely due to shoulder surgery that he underwent on November 5th. However, the Caps on Sunday afternoon did get back defenseman Dmitry Orlov from a two-game absence caused by being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol, and did get back Carl Hagelin. He returned from a two-game absence caused by being in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol. But here you are, right? You get back one defenseman in Orloff, but you lose another defenseman in Carlson. Such is life for the Caps this season. Now, the Caps have had the great eight, Alex Ovechkin. Uh, Ovechkin, in the win at the Islanders on Saturday afternoon, played despite having been held out of two practices earlier in the week due to a nagging upper body ailment. He had a third period even strength empty net goal and four shots on goal. And then Ovechkin was really good in the loss to the Canucks at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon. He had a first period power play goal, a game high seven shots on goal and a game-high 10 shot attempts. Uh, the Ovechkin power play goal, his 276th career regular season power play goal, extending his NHL record. And so Ovechkin's great season continues. He now is tied for first in the NHL with 26 goals this season, and he's tied for first in the NHL with 54 points this season. Uh, so Ovechkin had a very good weekend. So did Tom Wilson. Uh, Wilson in the win at the Islanders, on Saturday afternoon, had a first period even strength goal, and per natural stat trick, finished number two on the Caps in five-on-five -five shot attempt percentage for the game at 76.92. The Caps with Wilson on the ice in five-on-five -five situations in the game had 20 shot attempts versus allowing just six shot attempts. And then Wilson, in the loss to the Canucks at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon, had a third period power play goal and a game-high six hits, and he per natural stat trick, finished number one on the Caps in five-on-five -five shot attempt percentage for the game at 65.22. The Caps with Wilson on the ice in five-on-five -five situations in the game, 15 shot attempts versus allowing eight shot attempts. So Tom Wilson, a puck possession gangsta over the weekend. Uh, the Caps in that win at the Islanders on Saturday afternoon dominated the puck possession battle. The Caps Per natural stat trick, had 49 five-on-five -five shot attempts to the Islanders, 27, including in the second period, having 17 five-on-five -five shot attempts to the Islanders, three. Uh, the Caps for the game had 36 shots on goal to the Islanders, 23. But the Caps in the loss to the Canucks at Capital Win Arena on Sunday afternoon, per natural stat trick, just 46 five-on-five -five shot attempts to the Canucks, 57, including in the first period, having just 14 five-on-five -five shot attempts to the Canucks 30. And then there was the Caps goaltending. So the 2-0 win at the Islanders on Saturday afternoon saw Vitek Vanacek as a Caps starting goaltender. First time that Vitek had started a game for the Caps since the 3-2 loss to the Los Angeles Kings at Capital One Arena all the way back on December 19th. Remember, Vitek was in the NHL's COVID-19 protocol, then dealt with a non-COVID-19 illness. Uh, Vitek Vanacek had relieved Zach Fucali in the Caps' previous game that 7-3 loss to the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena 
last Monday night. Yeah, the Caps went from Tuesday through Friday without playing a game, played this game at the Islanders on Saturday afternoon, and won this game at the Islanders on Saturday afternoon, 2-0, as VTech pitched a shutout. He stopped all 23 of the shots on goal that he faced. He, per natural stat trick, stopped all eight of the high-danger shots on goal that he faced. So really nice job by Vitek Vanacek. Then in the 4-2 loss to the Canucks at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon, Ilya Samsonov was a cap starting goaltender for the first time in four games. He stopped 28 of the 31 shots on goal that he faced. Now, Ilya Samsonov has had a problem with the high danger shot on goal. Actually, Samsonov on Sunday afternoon per natural stat trick stopped all five of the high danger shots on goal that he faced, but he stopped just 13 of the 16 medium danger shots on goal that he faced. That was a crazy game on Sunday afternoon from a special team standpoint. The Caps went 2-2 on the power play for their first game in which they had multiple power play goals since October 27th. Yeah, the Caps power play had been struggling. You got two power play goals on Sunday afternoon, but you also gave up two power play goals on Sunday afternoon. The Caps in the game, a mere two of four on the penalty kill. Next up for the Caps, home to the Winnipeg Jets, Tuesday night at 7. All right, so with Monday being Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we have the annual Wizards MLK Jr. Day game. The Wizards will host the Philadelphia 76ers Monday afternoon at 2, and the Wiz will do so off yet another bad defensive performance. The Wizards fell to 22-21 and with a 115-110 loss to the Portland Trailblazers at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. So the Wizards now are just 12-18 and since their 10-3 and start to the season. You know, this has been a bad Wizards team since the great start to the season, and the team being bad now far outweighs the team being good in terms of games played. This 12-18 and stretch has come over, right, 30 games. The 10-3 and start came over, right, 13 games. Uh, you tell me, which sample size is more legit, the 30-game sample size or the 13-game sample size? Now, the Wizards on Saturday night... We're without multiple key people, and note that I said people and not just players, because the Wizards on Saturday night were without their head coach. Uh, Wes Unsell Jr. did not serve as Wizards head coach due to Wes being in the NBA's health and safety protocols. Assistant coach Pat Delaney served as acting Wizards head coach. Also, Bradley Beal did not play for a third consecutive game due to him being in the NBA's health and safety protocols. And Davis Bertans did not play due to a left midfoot sprain. But the Wizards on Saturday night lost to a Trailblazers team that hasn't been very good this season and that was without its two best players. So first of all, understand the Blazers with this win at the Wizards on Saturday night only improved to 17-25 and on the season, but the Blazers also were without their two best guys. Damian Lillard did not play due to a core muscle injury. C.J. McCollum did not play as he's working his way back from a right lung issue. Uh, The Wizards on Saturday night in the second half never held a lead. Uh, The Wizards in the second quarter led by one point at 44-43, but then allowed the Blazers to go on a 39-20 run for an 18-point deficit at 82-64 in the third quarter. And the biggest problem for the Wizards in this game was their first half defense. The Wizards' defense in the first half was horrendous. The Wizards' In the first half, allowed the Blazers to score 68 points. The Wizards in the first half allowed the Blazers to go 11 of 22 on threes. The Wizards in the first half allowed the Blazers to go 12 of 22 on twos. And the Wizards in the first half got torched 
by Anthony Simons. Anthony Simons in the first half went 7 of 10 on threes, scored 26 points, and had six assists versus two turnovers. Now, the Wizards in the second half played much better defensively. The Wizards in the second half held the Blazers to just two of 17 on threes, but the improved defense in the second half was far from enough to overcome the bad defense in the first half. Here was the Wizards acting head coach, Pat Delaney, during his post-game press conference on Saturday night of being asked to describe the Wizards' defense in this loss to the Blazers. Uh, inconsistent. You know, if you look at the of two halves, you know, uh, I don't remember exactly what they had or, you know, 70 at the half. And then you look at the second half, they scored 47 points in the second half. Simons, we held to five. I just told the guys, well, what was the big adjustment, right? There, there wasn't one. We put more into it. We competed harder, more energy, more talk, more effort. Um, and obviously, uh, give credit to them. They came out. Simons, we talked about all morning how well he'd been playing for them. And he got in a rhythm. We got comfortable. And um, again, just things that we don't do defensively, honestly, just uh, too many wasted possessions for us. And they made us pay for them. Yes, they did. And when we talk about why the Wizards are just 12 and 18, since their 10-3 and three start to the season, their defense is the biggest reason why. The Wizards' defense over their first 13 games this season was really good. The Wizards' defense over the last 30 games has been inconsistent at best. Here was Delaney during his post-game press conference on Saturday night on how the Wizards can be more consistently good defensively. Uh, I honestly, I think it just starts with a, a full commitment, to be honest with you, Josh. Uh, it's in every possession league it all matters. You know, we've seen it throughout this year in the last couple of years, 20 point leads early in the game. These are the best players in the world for uh, a lot of reasons, um, you know, sort of thing. And, you know, I, I, tying the first half into the second half tonight, I think that was the biggest thing, right? Um, we saw it uh, a couple of games ago, a uh, home game here. I don't remember exactly who it was, but our energy changed, our commitment changed, our disposition changed. Um, and sometimes it could be one or two guys that can change it. You know, with Spencer here against Shea Gilgis, uh, you know, in OKC just the other night, um, you know, sort of thing and kind of changed the whole momentum. And, and we needed that. We need more of that from the start as a collective group um, to help us be more consistent uh, on the defensive end. Yeah, this Wizards team is right back to where so many other Wizards teams have been really for decades now. I mean, I've talked about this so many times over the years. The Wizards are great at talking about needing to be better defensively, but the Wizards are not good at actually being better defensively. Uh, the Wizards also continue to have problems on threes. The Wizards on Saturday night went just 12-37 on threes. Spencer Dinwiddie and Corey Kispert went a combined 7-15 on threes, but the rest of the Wizards went just 5-22 of on threes. Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Kyle Kuzma each went 0-4 on threes. Also, the Wizards on Saturday night committed 20 turnovers. Haul Neto in 19-15 off the bench, one assist versus five turnovers. Kyle Kuzma in 36-36 as a starter, two assists versus five turnovers. He also went 0-4 on threes. Kuzma did go 7-14 on twos, did finish with 16 points, 12 rebounds, including four offensive boards and two blocks. Uh, but also, the Wizards got way too little from their bigs. Uh, Daniel Gafford played for just 10.55 as a starter, went 0-4 from the field. All twos finished with just two points, three rebounds, and a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 15. Thomas Bryant at 11.49 off the bench, 0-2 on threes, 0-1 on twos, finished with no points and just two rebounds. Rui Hachimura in 14.34 off the bench, 1-1 on threes, but 0-3 on twos, finished with five points 
and two rebounds. Now, look, Bryant and Hachimura are working their ways into form of having missed so much of this season. But still, you know, you'd like to see your bigs get going here. And, you know, especially Gafford. I mean, he's been around for the bulk of the season. He didn't look very good on Saturday night. And neither Bryant nor Hachimura yet is at a point at which you can count on either guy game in and game out. Two bright spots for the Wizards in the loss to the Blazers were Spencer Dinwiddie and Montrez Harrell. Spencer Dinwiddie, 4 of 10 on threes, 5 of 8 on twos, 5 of 5 on free throws. He finished with 27 points, 7 assists versus 3 turnovers and 34-11 as a starter. And Montrez Harrell in 25-16 off the bench. 0 of 1 on threes, but 8 of 9 on twos. He finished with 16 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists versus two turnovers. But ultimately, the Wizards lost again, and the Wizards on Monday afternoon at Capital One Arena will be facing a 76ers team. That's rolling. Uh, the Sixers have won nine of their last 10 games, including a 109-98 win at the Miami Heat on Saturday night. All right, time now to talk college basketball. Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, and Virginia Tech all played over the weekend, but only one of those teams won. Uh, this is not shaping up to be a great season of college basketball in the mid-Atlantic region. Uh, all four of these teams just really aren't that good. And I thought we saw a good bit of that, at least with three of the teams over the weekend. So Maryland, uh, it fell to 9-8 and eight overall and 1-5 and five in the Big Ten with a 70-59 loss to Rutgers at Xfinity Center in College Park on Saturday afternoon. The Terrapins in the second half just wilted. I mean, there's no other way to say it here. The Terps at halftime led by 11 points at 38-27, but the Terps lost the second half by 22 points. The Terps lost the second half 43-21. The Terps in the second half allowed Rutgers to go 7-13 on threes. The Terps in the second half went just 3-15 of on threes and just 4-13 of on twos. And going back to the three of 15 on threes in the second half, the Terps are such a bad three-point shooting team. This isn't new, but this continues to be such a problem for Maryland. The Terps in this game overall, six to 25 on threes. The Terps now this season shooting just 31.2% on threes. Rhode Island transfer and point guard Fats Russell, he went 0 of 5 on threes and just 2 of 6 on twos in 37 minutes as a starter. Eric Ayala went just 3 of 10 on threes and just 2 of 5 on twos in 33 minutes as a starter. Here's how bad the Terps shooting in this game was. The Terps lost the game by 11 points despite having a decisive edge in free throws. The Terps went 17 of 19 on free throws. Rutgers went 6 of 9 on free throws. So the Terps were plus 11 in free throw points and yet still lost by 11 points. Uh, the Terps had no answer for Ron Harper Jr. Ron Harper Jr. His dad, yes, is five-time NBA champion Ron Harper. Uh, Ron Harper won three NBA titles with the Chicago Bulls, won two NBA titles with the Los Angeles Lakers. Ron Harper Jr. in this game, six of eight on threes, finished with 31 points, four rebounds, and two assists versus two turnovers. Uh, Ron Harper Jr. is a really good player. Still, Maryland just got run over by Ron Harper Jr., in this game. It's interesting. The Terps interim head coach, of course, is Danny Manning. Danny Manning played with Ron Harper Sr. for years on the Los Angeles Clippers. So Danny Manning and Ron Harper Sr. were teammates on the Clippers November 1989 to February 1994. Uh, speaking of Danny Manning, he in this game started Julian Reese over Kudis Wahab. First time this season 
that we've had that. Julian Reese, 6'9 freshman, a consensus four-star recruit from St. Francis Academy in Baltimore. He started over the Georgetown transfer, over the 6'11 Nigerian Kudis Wahab. Uh, Reese in 25 minutes as a starter, 0-2 on threes, just 2-5 on twos, finished with nine points, did have seven rebounds, including six offensive boards. Wahab in 14 minutes off the bench, 1-2 from the field, all twos, four points, four rebounds, two blocks, and no assists versus four turnovers. He had four turnovers in just 14 minutes off the bench. I tell you, things are not going the way they were supposed to go with Kudus Wahab this season. Him transferring from Georgetown to Maryland was seen as a major coup for the Terps. I still think that it could prove to be a coup. I mean, Kudus Wahab is a talented guy, but his playing time has not been nearly what I think a lot of people thought that it would be. And his production has not been what I think a lot of people thought that it would be. I wonder if Kudus Wahab is having second thoughts about having transferred from Georgetown, you know? Not that the Hoyas are killing it this season, but Wahab with the Hoyas was a good player. Wahab with the Terps has been a much different player. And now, at least with this last game, he didn't even start for Maryland. Next up for the Terps at Michigan, Tuesday night at 7. Well, speaking of Georgetown, uh, the Hoyas fell to 6-8 and eight overall and 0-3 and in the Big East with an 88-69 Loss at St. John's on Sunday. The Hoyas in the game never held a lead. Uh, now, the Hoyas were missing a number of people, including, yes, their head coach. Patrick Ewing was out for a second consecutive game, as was announced by Georgetown, quote, in accordance with D.C. Department of Health guidelines, end quote. Assistant coach Louis Orr served as the Hoyas acting head coach for a second straight game. Again, we still don't know with certainty what's going on with Patrick, but presumably he's dealing with COVID-19 and just hope that he's doing well. Uh, Patrick in May 2020 was hospitalized with COVID-19. Uh, also for Georgetown, Donald Carey did not play for a third consecutive game due to illness. Kobe Clark for a second consecutive game was unavailable due to illness, though he hasn't played much this season. He has played in just two games. And freshman Jordan Riley did not play due to a shoulder injury. Georgetown on December 15th announced that Riley was out indefinitely due to the shoulder injury. Uh, back for the Hoyas was point guard Dante Harris. He returned from a one-game absence caused by illness. Harris went three of six on threes, two of five on twos, finished with 13 points, four assists, versus four turnovers in 33 minutes as a starter. I mentioned four turnovers. Turnovers, a huge problem for the Hoyas in this game. The Hoyas committed at 21 turnovers to St. John's 10, finished with five points off turnovers to St. John's 29. Uh, that's a problem. Colin Holloway in 18 minutes as a starter for Georgetown. No assists versus six turnovers. Uh, the Hoyas went just 9-26 on threes, just 15-35 on twos. Did hold St. John's to just 7-18 of 18 on threes, but allowed St. John's to go 23-40 on twos and thus got outscored in the paint 42-24. Georgetown went just 12-18 of 18 on free throws. St. John's went 21-29 on free throws. Few other Individual standouts for Georgetown, Caden Rice, the graduate transfer from the Citadel, 5 of 14 on threes, but he went just 2 of 8 on twos, finished with 19 points, 5 rebounds in 39 minutes as a starter. 6'5", five, five-star five freshman, Amido Muhammad, oh, went on threes, 5 of 6 on twos, 13 points, 12 rebounds, including 5 offensive boards, 2 assists versus 4 turnovers in 38 minutes as a starter. But the Hoyas just are not that good this season. I mean, I'm not sure how else we're supposed to say this here. And uh, things are not trending in a positive direction. Still winless in the Big East. And next up for the Hoyas, a stiff test at number 23 Providence Thursday evening 
at five. Virginia lost over the weekend. Uh, the Cavaliers fell to 10-7 and seven overall, 4-3 and three in the ACC, a 63-55 loss to Wake Forest to John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville on Saturday. Cavs with less than nine minutes left in the second half, led by seven points at 47-40, but the Cavs then allowed Wake Forest to end the game on a 23-8 run. Uh, the Wahoos got outscored in the paint by 10, 32-22. The Hoos held Wake Forest to just 6 of 18 on threes, but also allowed Wake to go 17 of 33 on twos. The Hoos went 5 of 13 on threes, but just 16 of 45 on twos. The Hoos had mixed results in defending the ACC's leading scorer, 6-5 Alondis Williams of Wake Forest. Uh, on the one hand, the Hoos held Alondis Williams to 0 of 3 on threes, got him to commit eight turnovers, but on the other hand, the Hoos allowed Alondis Williams to go 5-9 on twos and finish with 14 points, 8 rebounds, including 5 offensive boards, 4 assists, and a game-best plus-minus rating of plus 21. Uh, for Virginia, East Carolina transferred Jaden Gardner in 26-45 as a starter, just 3-14 of 14 from the field, all twos. He had no assists versus two turnovers, also had a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 18, so a really bad game for Jaden Gardner. Uh, a rough game, too, for the 7-1 Argentinian Francisco Cafaro. Now, remember, Francisco Cafaro was a huge force for Virginia in its previous game, the 54-52 win over Virginia Tech at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville last Wednesday night. Cafaro in that game, 16 points, 9 rebounds off the bench. Well, he in this game on Saturday started, but he in 24-19 as a starter went just 2-9 from the field, all twos and just one of three on free throws. Reese Beekman, all one on threes, just three of seven on twos and 38-53 as a starter. He had just six points and no rebounds. Did also have seven assists versus two turnovers, five steals and two blocks. UVA's best player was the Indiana transfer, Armand Franklin, three of five on threes, four of six on twos, finished with 18 points, three rebounds, three assists versus three turnovers and 35-36 as a starter. Next up for the Cavs at Pitt. Wednesday night at 9. And so the lone team in terms of the big four in college basketball in the Mid-Atlantic region that won over the weekend was Virginia Tech. Uh, the Hokies improved to 9-7 and seven overall and 1-4 and four in the ACC with a 79-73 win over Notre Dame at Castle Coliseum in Blacksburg on Saturday evening. The Hokies overcame a 10-point second-half deficit. Uh, the Hokies in the second half trailed 50-40 but then ended the game on a 39-23 run Hokies defense really was a tale of two halves. Hokies in the first half allowed Notre Dame to go 6 of 11 on threes, 9 of 17 on twos. But the Hokies in the second half allowed Notre Dame to go 2 of 9 on threes and just 9 of 20 on twos. And Tech shot really well in this game. I tell you, good offense in college basketball right now is uh, rather scarce. So when you get a good offensive showing from a team, uh, you got to savor it. And Virginia Tech gave us a good offensive showing in this game on Saturday evening, Tech went 10 of 20 on threes, 19 of 29 on twos. Uh, Tech won the game despite Notre Dame committing just three turnovers the entire game, but Tech shooting was just that good. Uh, Justin Mutz was really good. 101 on threes, 8 of 10 on twos, finished with 24 points, seven rebounds, three assists versus two turnovers in 33 minutes as a starter. Naheem Aline, four of five on threes, four of five on twos, finished with 22 points, three assists versus two turnovers in 38 minutes as a starter. Storm Murphy, four of seven on threes. He finished with 12 points, four rebounds, and two assists versus three turnovers in 33 minutes as a starter. And Keve Aluma, 0 of three on threes, but seven of 11 on twos. He finished with 17 points, eight rebounds, two assists versus two turnovers in 36 minutes as a starter. Really nice job by the Hokies in getting this win 
over Notre Dame and Blacksburg on Saturday evening. Next up for the Hokies at NC State, Wednesday night at 7. All right, let's talk some baseball. Yes, baseball in January. Uh, Major League Baseball is in the midst of a lockout that started on December 2nd, but we actually have had some Nationals and Orioles news over the last few days. Next segment, I'll deal with the O's, but right now, the Nats. Uh, So there has been good news and there has been bad news with the Nats in recent days. We'll start with the good news. The good news is this. The Nats on Saturday signed perhaps the top international prospect in baseball, Christian Vaquero. Uh, Major League Baseball's international signing period began on Saturday, runs through December 15th. The Nats on Saturday morning announced the signing of outfielder Christian Vaquero. His nickname is The Phenomenon, which tells you all that you need to know about Christian Vaquero. He's just 17. He was ranked by Baseball America as the number one international player who was eligible to sign with a Major League team in 2022. He was ranked by MLB Pipeline as the number two international player who was eligible to sign with a major league team in 2022. So he's either the number one international prospect or the number two international prospect, depending on by what you want to go. Christian Vaquero is from Havana, Cuba, but he made his way to the Dominican Republic to further his baseball development. He's a natural left-handed hitter, but he learned to switch hit in the Dominican. He's listed as being six foot three and 185 pounds. He is said to be a potentially dynamic five-tool player. Now, will he be a dynamic five-tool player? Who the heck knows, right? I mean, again, he's only 17, but here's something that's very encouraging. He does seem to have a good head on his shoulders. Christian Vaquero has received praise for his maturity and his intelligence. He has studied English for three years. Uh, He also spent a portion of his youth living in the Republic of Angola. Uh, look, with athletes and the kinds of people they actually are, you don't know until you know. But to the extent that we can know about Christian Vaquero's maturity, he does seem to be a mature person. But here's the biggest takeaway of all for me. The Nats signing Christian Vaquero is exactly the kind of thing that president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo should be doing to expedite the Nats' rebuild given the state of the farm system. The Nats' farm system is in better shape now as compared to the shape that the farm system was in prior to the massive sell-off of late July of last year. But the farm system overall still is not very good. Christian Vaquero, were he to be available in an MLB draft, likely would be a top-five pick. So the Nats in signing this guy have added a top five MLB draft pick caliber player to their organization. That is huge. And he only costs $4.9 million, which is a lot of money for an international prospect. But in the grand scheme of things in Major League Baseball is pocket change, $4.9 million. So even if Christian Vaquero doesn't work out, It's not like this costs you tens to say nothing of hundreds of millions of dollars. It's $4.9 million. So bravo to Mike Rizzo. There's a reason that I call Rizzo the ninja. Because you never know when the ninja will strike. And the ninja struck over the weekend. Yes, that is the sound of the ninja strike. Now to the bad news for the Nats. Uh, Seth Romero on Friday morning was arrested and charged with driving 
while intoxicated. A terrible first-round pick for the Nats now looks even worse. The Nats took Seth Romero with the number 25 pick in the 2017 MLB draft. Uh, This was a risky pick to begin with as Seth Romero at the University of Houston was suspended twice and ultimately was dismissed from the program. He then was sent home from 2018 Nats spring training for repeated curfew violations. That almost never happens, a player being sent home from spring training for disciplinary reasons. Uh, Seth Romero on August 30th, 2018, underwent Tommy John surgery. He, in the 2020 season, did actually pitch for the Nats in three games as a reliever. And the Nats this past August 24th did promote Romero from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester. But the promotion was at least somewhat curious because the promotion came despite Seth Romero over six starts for AA Harrisburg in the 2021 season, having an ERA of 531. Now, he did have a sky-high strikeout rate. Seth Romero's strikeouts per nine innings for AA Harrisburg at the time of his promotion to AAA Rochester was 15.05. So I suppose that's why he got promoted. But here we are now, Seth Romero on Friday morning, arrested and charged with driving while intoxicated. The 2022 season would be Seth Romero's age 26 season. I'm not sure how much longer he'll be in the Nats organization. I would not be surprised at all if Mike Rizzo releases Seth Romero. It's one thing to be a pain if you're productive or you're at least promising. But if you're a pain and you're not productive nor promising, uh, then what exactly is the point, okay? The number one reason that the Nats are where they are in terms of having to undergo this rebuild is bad drafting slash player development in recent years. Nobody, and I mean nobody, epitomizes the bad drafting part of that more than Seth Romero. Uh, he has been a disaster for the Nats. As for the Orioles, uh, we have changes at Oriole Park at Camden Yards going on right now. Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias and O's Vice President and Assistant General Manager in charge of analytics, Sig Meidel, on Friday spoke via virtual press conference to address the first changes to the playing area at Oriole Park at Camden Yards since modest changes were made before the 2001 season. Oriole Park at Camden Yards opened with the 1992 season. So the 2022 season, assuming that we'll have it, uh, will mark the 30th anniversary of the ballpark that started the trend of retro parks in Major League Baseball. Oriole Park at Camden Yards, which remains an excellent ballpark, even though very few people have been attending games there in recent seasons, started this trend of retro parks in MLB. But it's worth getting into these changes taking place at Oriole Park at Camden Yards if you're an O's fan. So the changes have to do with the left field wall. Uh, the left field wall is being pushed back 26 and a half feet into the seating area, and the left field wall is being raised from 7 feet 4 inches to an even 13 feet. Construction will be completed by opening day. 2022. Now, the distance to the left field foul pole will remain unchanged at 333 feet, but the distance to true left field is being pushed back to 384 feet. This was Mike Elias on Friday. Bringing the playing conditions at our stadium uh, more towards the league norm. Um, This has been, since its inception in 1992, an extreme park for home runs, but that has only grown as the style of play across the major leagues has evolved over the last 30 years. 
and really outside of a, of a one-year uh, aberration in 2001, I believe, um, these have been the uh, dimensions of this park for, for 30 years. Um, and um, it has been one of the very, very most um, extreme home run parks in, in baseball. Um, this, I, I think, uh, for, for any team, for any park, to be toward um, the very, very extreme in, in either direction, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, and it's something that has posed a challenge for, for this franchise. And uh, we think that this will improve the playing conditions and the style of play um, in this part of uh, the park and uh, be beneficial towards us and the uh, type of competition that, that occurs here um, going forward. So it, it, this uh, project will be completed prior to opening day 2022. Um, and uh, these these dimensions will take place now and, and going forward. So it's something that um, we are very hopeful about, about what the, uh, the effects will be towards bringing this park towards neutrality. It's still going to remain very much a hitter's park is our expectation. And even a hitter's park in particular for right-handed batters uh, will still be the case. Um, but this will uh, bring the, our expectation is that this will bring the conditions more toward uh, the league norm so that we're not seeing such extreme outcomes on, on fly balls to this part of the park as has been the case here um, over, over the years. So I want to thank uh, everybody in the Orioles organization, particularly the, the ballpark ops group led by Greg Bader and, and Troy Scott, and thank our partnership group and the Maryland Stadium Authority for uh, their support and execution in, in pushing this forward. I think it's going to be a very good thing for the Orioles. Yes, it should be. Understand how much of a hitter's park, especially a home run hitter's park, Oriole Park at Camden Yards has been. So the best measure of how hitter-friendly MLB ballparks are is Baseball Savant's Park Factor, which is based on StatCast data. So 100 is league average. Anything above 100 is above average. Here are Oriole Park at Camden Yards Park Factor rankings over the last decade, okay? So 2012 through 2021. 2021, number two at 107. 2020, number 29 at 93. But remember, 2020 was that shortened season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. 2019, number four, 105. 2018, number 12, 102. 2017, number 10, 103. 2016, number 12, 101. 2015, number 5, 105. 2014, number 16, 100. 2013, number 7, 104. 2012, number 4, 110. So Oriole Park at Camden Yards has been top 12 in the majors in Park Factor eight times over the last 10 seasons and has been top five in the majors in Park Factor four times over the last 10 seasons. So yeah, Oriole Park at Camden Yards quantifiably has been a hitter-friendly park. And I don't think that you needed the data to tell you that. Anyone who's an Orioles fan who has watched games at Oriole Park at Camden Yards understands that Oriole Park at Camden Yards has been a home run hitter's haven for a while. But yeah, I mean, the numbers do in fact back that up. And so that brings us to this. Mike Elias on Friday admitted that these changes to Oriole Park at Camden Yards do have to do with the sense that the team has gotten from free agent pitchers who are reluctant to sign with the O's because of the Homer happy nature 
of Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Free agent pitchers don't want to pitch at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Free agent pitchers don't want to get shellacked at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Oriole Park at Camden Yards, in a lot of ways, is Coors Field East. Here was Mike Elias on Friday on free agent pitchers having not wanted to sign with the O's, in part because of the nature of Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a significant factor in uh, our move to do this. Uh, again, we still expect that this will remain uh, somewhat of a hitter's park, um, and we like that about Camden Yards, but uh, the, the conditions here have been very extreme towards the very most extreme in the league. Um, it's not a secret. It's been the case for decades. Um, and part of having a winning program is the ability to recruit free agent pitchers. And that has been a historical challenge for this franchise. There's just no way around that. So I do think it's going to help going forward. I think, uh, you know, the proof will be in the pudding as the, as the games, uh, get played here uh, over the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, we are, since I've been here um, in three years, you know, we've been uh, tasked with uh, taking a fresh look at the entire organization. And, and you know, that's something that has been an impediment here. It's something that um, I think this will move towards, towards helping us in, in that regard. All right, so Mike Elias right there, pretty honest about why the O's are making these changes to Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Free agent pitchers don't want to come to the O's. You know, as the O's are hopefully starting to come out of their rebuild, uh, they do need to start planning for the next phase of the rebuild. And the next phase is the attempt to start spending again, the attempt to add strategic free agents to the many highly touted prospects the O's have accumulated as those prospects make their ways to the major league level. Well, you got to start planning this stuff now. And part of the planning clearly is making Oriole Park at Camden Yards more appealing to free agent pitchers. Uh, This is smart what the O's are doing in making the ballpark hopefully more neutral because the ballpark, as great as it is, has been a bandbox for years. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 231, will feature a special guest, the man known as Kyle Smith for GM. He's a writer for Hogshaven, which is the SB Nation site for the Washington football team. Very popular side, as many of you know. Now, the man known as Kyle Smith for GM operates in anonymity. I don't even know his name, but I know that he's smart. He has written two pieces for Hogshaven in recent days. One article is on the Washington players who provided the best values in the 2021 regular season. Another article is on how Washington can parlay other desperate teams to its advantage this offseason. So we'll talk Washington football team with Kyle Smith for GM, writer for Hogshaven. Also on Tuesday's show, postgame, the Wizards game on Monday afternoon. The Wizards will host the Philadelphia 76ers Monday afternoon at 2. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. How about them, Cowboys? Yeah!